Hello, and you are listening to Scar Joe A Go Go, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. I'm Luke, and this week I'm talking about Avengers Age of Ultron or Making Monsters. to learn, not just to yawn, for our most loved celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer, if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scarjo go, go. In 1818, when Mary Shelley put down her needlework to give the menfolk a scary story, she created a monster. Frankenstein's monster, to be a little bit more specific, who, yes, did indeed turn out to be murderous, but only after years of twisted torment, exacerbated by the complete rejection of his creator. Shelley's monster, if you go back and actually read the book, is eloquent, just as eloquent as his estranged creator. And what I love about the book is the two of them are forever entwined due to like the abhorrent underhand circumstances of their past because Victor played God and um, they are locked in an unwinnable battle. And it's a story that for, I guess, nearly 200 years now has inspired a million different incarnations. However, when it comes to mainstream Hollywood adaptations, uh, starting with that very famous one starring uh, Boris Karloff, something has definitely been, to steal from our star of our show, lost in translation. Gone is the complex, tortured, eloquent creature from the book, and in his place is a big, lumbering, wordless brute. And he's sympathetic, yes, I'll give you that, but in a very childlike way. His passion is gone, as is the the eloquence and the loathing and the angst that he expresses uh, towards his absent creator. So, my question is... Do mainstream audiences have difficulty accepting and understanding a complicated monster? Do they prefer clearly defined black and white heroes and villains as opposed to shades of grey? So, you know, do we want evil villains to rally against and strong, flawless heroes uh, who are there battling them and destroying them? Or can a hero be a monster too? And that is what we're going to find out today. But first, when we last left Scarlett Johansson, and good gosh, this was a few months ago, uh, she starred in crazy Frenchman Luc Besson's audaciously entertaining and over-the-top science-defying action rampage Lucy. And as the titular Lucy, you'll recall she portrayed an unwilling drug mule who reaches 100% of her brain's capacity in a role that I claimed at the time was 25% Black Widow, 25% Under the Skin, 25% Her, and 25% something else that I still can't quite find a name for, but it has exposed roots and drinks coffee through a straw. If you've never seen the movie and you're just, ha- you have no idea like how crazy it is, It has dinosaurs in it. Basson, you nuts! So that's where we left off a few months ago because we ran out of films. And then Age of Ultron came out. But uh, really, uh, I'm not going to do an episode while the film's still in the cinema. Uh, I need to wait until it's on Blu-ray. Everybody has a chance to to watch it. And um, I can watch it scene by scene and slow it down and and take notes and do all that. So... uh, I've missed you guys. I've really missed Scarlett Johansson. I've missed doing this show. Uh, It's wonderful to be back. Obviously, we're only going to get episodes now when a new movie uh, is available. But that said, uh, do ensure that you keep this podcast in your subscriptions. Keep an eye out whenever there's a new Scarlett Johansson film because uh, I definitely intend to keep the series going. It's something that I've very much enjoyed. So this leads us to Age of Ultron, which came out earlier this year. And uh, the timeline's quite interesting for me here because it was released in Australia at least a week before it was released in America. And uh, we also got to see through our contacts at Fruitless Pursuits uh, preview 
of the film. So we saw it just that little bit earlier. And uh, as far as the reception went here, uh, for the most part, I think it was generally very, very positive. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I saw it twice in about a week. And uh, I know that uh, my fellow podcast friends, co-hosts and other shows, we all really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, it's different from Avengers. It is very jam-packed with characters and uh, has all sorts of um, crazy plot stuff going on. But uh, I really enjoyed that. I, I, what I love about the Marvel Universe is that it is jam-packed. And if you read any of those comics, they are packed with characters. And I, I thought this did a very good job at juggling uh, them all. And um, look, it definitely takes a few characters in unexpected directions. And if you are a fan of these characters, often the result of that is you feel ownership of them. So you might not have been expecting certain relationships to happen, certain character backstories to unfold how they were. And I know that certainly uh, rustled the jimmies of a few fans out there. But I'm not as interested in talking about what this movie isn't. I'm I'm more interested in talking about what it is. And uh, what really surprised me is that once it was released in the US, this controversy about the Black Widow character, which is, of course, our main focus here. That's what this podcast is about. There are a lot of people that quite loudly stated on the Internet that they felt her character got a really raw deal in this film. And there's a particular scene, which we will get to in due course, which caused a lot of controversy and um, had people really turning on uh, writer and director Joss Whedon. And and this really surprised me because I didn't feel any of these things when I watched the film a week before. and, And it wasn't something that I was hearing from people in Australia. And I was actually quite impressed with what they did with Black Widow. Um, and I'll justify that as we continue. So that's kind of the framework as we go into this. And also, I'm certainly not going to nitpick the trappings of the superhero genre. Like, I'm, I'm one, I'm really just going to focus on Black Widow scenes, and I'm not too concerned with the overall plot of this film. But when it comes to things like, oh yeah, but Ultron was trying to lift up a piece of the city and throw it back down on the earth and like a meteorite and that was stupid or whatever. I'm not interested in that. I I think that um, all those things are given and in terms of all the superhero nonsense in this film, it was definitely par for the course. I think if you're going into one of these films, you've got to expect a big CGI battle at the end and a heap of destruction, etc, etc. It's part of the contract. It's what you're signing up for. I think what's interesting about the Marvel films, however, is is the character development they do and the really um, astute casting uh, that they've done. And really, these films are a marriage of those superhero big action blockbuster trappings and then these kind of more domestic character development sequences all the individual character arcs, and um, they're often approached with quite a bit of uh, humour and intelligence, which uh, is what I think really engages me with these films and draws me in. And certainly in terms of Black Widow's character, it's that arc, it's that development that we're most interested in this uh, show today. And I also just want to preface things before we get into the film itself by just saying that I don't think that to be a strong female character, you just have to kick ass and have, you know, wonderful things that happen to you. You don't have to be this um, really perfect, confident, uh, heroic, no personal problems, go in and and fight everybody. Um, I think strong characters are flawed. They have layers, they have problems, they have arcs. I think um, the best male characters in cinema have been flawed. I think uh, the best female characters is the exact same. There's no exception. And I think there's a danger when you're a fan of something that you want to dilute the character into this sort of perfect person. You don't want anything to happen to them or change about them. You want them to exist in this kind of perfect, impenetrable bubble. And I think that's such a dead end storytelling wise. I think there's a danger of um, Mary suing these characters. And I get the vibe sometimes that people think that Black Widow should be just kicking ass all the time and um, not answering to anybody or not showing any signs of weakness, etc, etc. And I, I think that would make her a worse character. I think that would be really dull. But you know what? You don't have to take my word for it. We're going to go straight to the source. We're going to go through the film. We're going to look at all of Scarlett Johansson's parts as a Black Widow, all of her sequences. And uh, let's see what you think. It is up to you, dear listener, to decide whether you agree with my consensus or not. And I always invite your comments, counterpoints in the discussion page on Facebook. So uh, the film 
Avengers Age of Ultron 2015. Now, a few seconds in, the bad guys, which are Baron Von Strucker and his group who are in um, some European country in the snow, they are under attack by the assembled Avengers. This film gets absolutely straight into the action. And Black Widow is pretty much the first Avenger that we see, not just driving the Jeep that's uh, barreling through the forest, but also kicking the absolute shit out of a poor soul who tries to intercept them. And uh, this is a long shot that gives each Avenger a fighting moment, sort of panning between them all. So uh, this film basically begins with an homage to the shot that was really the climax of the last Avengers film. So there is no messing around here at all. It's straight in what you waited two hours for last time, you're getting in about 10 seconds this time. And I think that's pretty impressive because if you listen to the Book Was Better podcast, we recently did Fantastic Four 2 Rise of the Silver Surfer. And despite being a sequel, there's no superhero stuff in that for about 20, 30 minutes. It's just characters planning a fucking wedding. Whereas this film is like, oh, you want Avengers? Bam! Avengers in your face! And she seamlessly goes from driving to leaping sideways out of the moving vehicle and fly kicking some prick in the head. So if you want your strong kick-ass heroine, you've already got it. She's here. It's on the screen. There's no doubt of her ability right here. The question is, where do we go now, though? How do we evolve this? How do we give her an arc? And she's very, very much cemented as a pivotal part of the team here. She's no longer just a sort of um, ancillary member via S.H.I.E.L.D. She is definitely an Avenger. And her arsenal of tricks is constantly expanding. Like, she throws a grenade here before convincingly taking down another couple of guys with sweet kicks. You'll notice there's a costume change as well. And her new costume has this glue... Uh, glue? It shoots glue like paste pot Pete. No, it has blue piping and red gauntlets. And of course, our main superhero characters use a lot of primary colours. And here, Scarlet also gets to step out of the darkness a little bit and align herself further with the superheroes. It's more of a fanciful superhero costume. And also, I think, a good reminder of her gauntlet's purpose, with the blue piping seeming to pump energy towards her wrists. Plus, Joss also returns her to her best Black Widow hair, my favourite Black Widow hair, that above-the-shoulder thing. I think she looks fantastic. Disappointed that in Civil War she's got a longer Farrah Fawcett thing happening. You're not here to talk about hairstyles, but that's the truth. And her first line, we always mention her first line, it's a very dry, sarcastic one, uh, delivered, delivered very effortlessly after a show of power. And she says, at long last is lasting a little long, boys, uh, punctuated by shooting someone behind her who doesn't even really realise that she's there. So she is a, a funny, dry character. And they're obviously an established team now, uh, whereas we'd only seen them assemble for the first time in the previous movie. And she is a big part of their banter. And I think um, straight off the bat, we're reminded of gender a little bit by her calling them boys. She's the only female that's acknowledged here. And I feel like she sort of affectionately raises herself above them. Like they can behave like a bunch of children and her teasing implies that she's the most competent and professional one out of all of them. So if they're behind schedule, it's not because of her. She is someone who gets shit done. She's an incredibly assured and competent character. So we've already seen both physical strength and a really strong resolve from her. She's equally presented as someone in the battle. She's not overtly sexualized, anything like that. She's a tough professional person that has just as much say in what's happening as everybody else. Then dumbass Hawkeye, old potato face, gets hit and uh, gets shot in the side and Black Widow rushes to his aid. She's fixing him up. She's ordering Hulk to destroy a bunker. So this really services to um, reinforce the friendship between Black Widow and Hawkeye, which is going to get more exploration in this film, as well as her versatility on the battlefield. She's not a blunt instrument like, say, Hulk or Thor or Iron Man. She's uh, far more of a tactician, I believe. And speaking of Hulk, it is lullaby time. Here's the first of the new things that's introduced that um, has caused people varying degrees of curry, varying temperatures of curry, perhaps. So she approaches him, 
She says, hey, big guy, and crouches, offering her palm out, kind of like she's taming a wild animal. It's almost a little bit raptor hands. And um, they touch, she strokes his arm, she's smiling slightly, and he stumbles and begins to transform. Um, and for the first time so far in this film, and fair enough, we're not very far into it, she's not as assured here. She's very tense and alert, like she's not 100% sure that it's actually going to even work this time. And, you know, really watch her performance. Really, I always say that Scarlett can convey a lot without words. And I think her performance really tells the backstory here. And when he does begin, what looks like an uncomfortable and, and um, undignified transformation back to Banner, she lowers her head and there's a touch of sadness there. Like, she definitely has empathy for him. She has some sort of connection with him. And... Um, it's very much like she suddenly can't bring herself to watch him go through this. Like, she doesn't want to be a part of this. She knows it makes him uncomfortable. She It's almost like she kind of wants to give him his privacy as he goes back into his human mode. So, why is the lullaby Black Widow's job? Why have they got the woman doing it? Well, why not? I mean, let's consider all of the story arcs here. So, this is only the second time we've seen the Hulk fighting alongside the Avengers. Uh, the first being the Battle of New York in the first Avengers film. And for me, one of the most unsatisfying things about that film was that Hulk suddenly seemed in control in that last scene. He seemed to be able to turn it on and turn it off, which kind of came out of nowhere. And I do think it's far better for the character if he keeps that element of danger and unpredictability. Uh, because being the Hulk is not a blessing. It's definitely a burden. And we know that Banner has even tried to commit suicide in the past. So controlling the Hulk should be a continual problem for the team. And uh, we know that because in this film, Tony Stark and Bruce Banner have developed the Hulkbuster armor, for example, in case there is a problem. Also, time has passed since we saw the Battle of New York. Um, they've probably gone on other missions together. And now we see that they've established some processes in order to assist with dealing with Hulk. So clearly it has to be somebody that he trusts that takes on that role. And um, Black Widow being female does make sense in the fact that we have seen Hulk in previous Hulk movies be calmed by women he has a connection to. It seems to be a sort of soft spot for him. It seems to be something that... Uh, sucks out the savageness terrible phrase and widow was also carefully selected by a nick fury to recruit banner in the first place so she is his gateway to this team and presumably because of that somebody that he's spent more time with they also have a lot of lot in common they are the two misfits of the team but pin that for now. I'm going to expand upon their connection and why they're the two misfits uh, very shortly. So on the Quinjet, after the battle, they discuss how effective the lullaby is. And this is the best that has worked, apparently. So it's certainly no sure thing. It's not this sudden magical trick, feminine wiles, sexual hold or anything else she has over him. It's a gambit, it's a risk, it's something that they are experimenting with. And Banner is obviously still shaken up by his experience, and she's basically there to convince him that the Hulk, his monster side, is an asset. So he feels like he's a monster, he feels like he's a killer, like he's out of control. She sees the good in him. And in this instance, it saved her, quote, best friend, i.e. potato face, Hawkeye. So uh, this is the first indication that he has been officially friend-zoned. So if you were thinking, hmm, kind of want to see Hawkeye and Black Widow together, here's your first indication that that's not going to happen. And look, I think the friend-zone is a perfect place for circus archers. I wouldn't let that guy too close. And some nice light and shade here from Scarlet in her performance. We saw her kick-ass strength. Now this is her more compassionate human side. She cares for him. She wants his full trust. And she is very much the pursuer here. She's choosing to align herself with Banner. She's the one that's interested in him. And it's a typically engaging performance from Scarlet. As we know from this long series, she has focus. She has presence. And she plays the story for truth no matter how crazy it gets and I love that she takes this superhero material 
nonsense about this guy turning into a big green monster, all that stuff, she plays it just as real as she would in any other movie. And Joss really does give her a lot of variety to chew on in this film. We're going to see a lot of different aspects of her character, and it really gives her a chance to perform unlike Iron Man 2, for example. Um, nice little detail as well. When Stark's Iron Legion drones dock and he has a brief exchange with Banner, you can see Scarlet in the background watching Banner walk past through the glass of um, the adjoining room before turning back to her duties, which in this case is uh, affectionately teasing the injured Hawkeye. And uh, at the end of this scene, there's this odd cutaway, actually, of Scarlet um, reacting to something Tony says. She gives him this kind of look, like, hmm? And it doesn't, it's not really warranted from what he says, and she's sucking on a drink with a straw, which seems to be the same drink that a healing Hawkeye is sucking on. So it's like, did she nick it from him? And I was thinking, like, is this because she doesn't get to smoke as much in films anymore, and she needs, like, to put something in her mouth? I don't know. So we head to the party scene, the after party, where the movie very much switches its focus to these domestic character development moments I mentioned before. And firstly, in a casual close here, I think she looks amazing. She's got the retro hair, she's got the black and white dress, black and white, not quite a hero, not quite a villain. She's pouring a red drink from behind the bar. She's not the bartender. At first I was like, are you the bartender? She seems to pour a drink for herself behind the bar and then leave. Um, so as I said, she gets shit done. And this is the most stylish I think she's been in. And it's also the costume that feels the most personal to me. It feels like there's something of Scarlett Johansson in it as opposed to a wardrobe department going, oh, she's a spy, let's put her in something leather. This, to me, feels like the real Natasha, who has let her guard down to enjoy herself with friends for the night, which is something that she doesn't do often. And it's probably the last opportunity she's going to get to really be that relaxed Natasha in this film. And um, she plays a role here. She's having fun with it, with this whole fella done me wrong um, pretending they're in an old film. And, and then begins some epic Scarlet flirting with Bruce Banner, Mark Ruffalo. And again, she is the pursuer. She's all eyes. This is something she does very well. I'm reminded like match point when she's being the seductress. And it's very much a game that she plays here. She teases and hides behind the humor, but then she's real for a moment and then she deflects it again with jokes. It's kind of like fishing, like knowing when to loosen up and when to reel in. I don't know anything about fishing. I'm just assuming that. I think I fished in video games. So why Banner? Why Bruce Banner? Why is this the guy that she's attracted to? Because I got to admit, when I saw, first saw the film, it was jarring to me as well. I was like, really? This guy? But let's think about it. As I touched on before, Banner and Widow are the misfits here. She even separates him out from the others in this conversation. She says, all of my friends are fighters, and then this guy comes along. So he's different to them in her eyes. Now, Black Widow's dark past has been hinted at a lot in her previous movies. We know she has a lot of blood on her hands. And this is the first place, this being part of the Avengers team, where she's been valued as a hero. But that's not a place where she's entirely comfortable yet. She doesn't trust everyone or let everyone close to her. And that's something that Cap uh, chats to Banner about once Scarlet departs the scene. He confirms all of this. But she's good friends with Cap. Yes, we know that. We saw that in Winter Soldier. But they're very opposed in their methods and ideology to ever become an item. So despite their friendship, she still went behind his back to do covert spy stuff on the ship at the beginning of Winter Soldier. Um, the differences in their methods were highlighted when she kicked Agent Sitwell off the roof. In that relationship, he's definitely the light and she's the dark. And um, let's look at the background of these characters as well. Cap chose to undergo the experiment and become a super soldier and fight for his country. And Iron Man chose to make the suit and share its power with the world. Thor is the son of Odin. He was born to be a hero. Um, Hawkeye chose to spend a hell of a lot of weekends learning archery. But Banner did not choose to be a monster. And he didn't choose to lose control and hurt or kill people. So the question is, did Black Widow choose to be an assassin? Did she choose to be a monster? And I think really Banner and Widow have the most in common in this group in that sense. They are the misfit outsiders who feel like they are playing the role of heroes. And it's not a comfortable place for either, either of them, considering what they know about their true selves. So if you conveniently ignore the disparity in age and attractiveness, then it actually makes sense that these two characters are drawn to each other. I don't think 
Joss Whedon randomly pulled their names out of a hat. I think thematically, uh, they're aligned really well. And um, this budding relationship, this game, this flirtation is always happening, even in the background. As the drunken discussion begins about who else is worthy enough to lift Thor's hammer, you can see Banner and Widow engaged in a close private conversation to the side of the frame. And Widow won't even attempt the hammer lift. She doesn't want to be asked the question of whether or not she's worthy. She says, that's not a question I need answered, and then chugs a beer straight away, which is awesome. So it's a joke. She's making light, but no one harangues her further. They're not going, ah, go on, give it a go. There's a respect here about her past. They know it's not a good idea to poke around about her past. The things that she's done are an ongoing issue. And then the fucked up Ultron robot arrives and the comic book plot kicks back in. And as I said, we're not going to talk too much about that here. She is great in the battle, though. She dives over the bar not to escape, but to uh, access a concealed gun. And in the kind of reversal of gender, it's Banner that falls hopelessly on top of her. And, um, you know, she's really the more formidable person in their human forms. And she says, don't turn green. And she's got a little bit of fear in her eyes when she says this. We're reminded that as much as she likes him, he is still a threat. There is still this unknown factor about him. Um, So she accepts the monster within him, but she also respects its power. Then uh, afterwards, after the Ultron robot's been taken down, casual hoodie Scarlet joins the group to do her share of the exposition. Great back-to-business juxtaposition compared to this sort of uh, vixen that we saw at the party. The the charm, the comfort is gone. It's back to serious face. The crossed defensive arms, which is a uh, quite popular Black Widow pose that you'll you'll see a lot in the films. Although, as the freshly minted Ultron aligns himself with uh, the new mutants, they're not allowed to say mutants in these films because Fox has the rights to mutants, they're enhanced. Uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are the two new characters that will later join the Avengers, or one of them will. We touch on this monster creation idea again, because uh, Ultron is very much a Frankenstein creation who is about to cause a whole lot of shit for his creator. And although Black Widow is absent in this scene, uh, I thought there was some interesting context here, because Ultron says, everyone creates the thing they dread. Men of peace create engines of war, invaders create avengers, people create smaller people, uh, children, designed to supplant them, to help them end. So this idea of children enters here for the first time, and it's interesting to me, because it's like children is a way for us to find peace, like to create a fresh slate, to atone for the sins of the past, to, to leave something positive behind. So... You know, like, you're not innocent, but then you bring an innocent into the world and are able to kind of at least feel you've done that. So would such a thing be desirable to a couple of our protagonists? You can see why that might interest them. And um, then more Widow exposition as they're trying to get to the bottom of this Ultron thing. Uh, She gets to use a computer again, like a boss. She's the one sitting at the computer figuring things out, though watch her type. No action typing here. It's very laconic typing from Scarlet. A little bit disappointed. Doesn't really look like she's hitting any of those keys. So the team end up going to Africa, to Wakanda, to fight Ultron. And they tangle with Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. And Scarlet Witch has this power to get into everybody's minds. She twists around their minds and gives them visions of the past and the, the future, the present. Like the like um, Christmas Carol. And Widow gets hers while looking delightfully battle-sweaty, I must say. So, what's inside the Black Widow's mind? We get some flashbacks to her sinister past, and I love this. I love the economic way that suddenly we get to see key portions of her beginnings... Uh, and things that are derived from the comic source material, things that I thought we would never see unless they eventually did the ever-elusive Black Widow solo film. Uh, It's here, it's in this. This film's already jam-packed, and we are seeing some key Black Widow moments. And I love it, because this is such an economic way to weave them into a story, because you're introducing Scarlet Witch's powers, you're giving her screen time, but you're also really getting inside our main character's heads. So in this flashback... Black Widow's walking tentatively through a building. It really looks like uh, Professor X, or Wheelchair Charlie, as I like to call him, uh, School for Gifted Youngsters. 
There's lots of young girls in leg warmers and ballet shoes here. And then we see ballerinas dance. I like how um, they're all being sort of drilled and Black Widow, who's walking through this scene, looks and says, you'll break them. Uh, there's mention of a graduation ceremony and a believably upset younger Natasha is panicking on an operating table, laying there on the slab, Frankenstein's monster-like, surrounded by intrusive instruments. She is an experiment. And then we see a tied-up defenseless man with a bag on his head and she raises a gun and presumably shoots, murdering a helpless innocent in cold blood. She is becoming a monster. This is her creation story. She wrestles with a man. She pretends to fail. She says, I have no place in the world, uh, to which her creators say exactly. So she's losing her humanity through all of this process through the killing, through the experimentation. She's being wheeled on a gurney. She's being shaped into something else. She's losing her innocence and she is changing. And then when we get back to reality, she's catatonic. Uh, she's not available for a lullaby and she's really taken out of proceedings for a while in this film because then we go into the big Iron Man fighting the enraged Hulk while wearing the Hulkbuster armor. And um, yes, we will notice that she's not quite as prominent in the second half of the film. But I don't want to pin that on the filmmakers because they have a great record of keeping her active and present. There is real life logistics here because Scarlett is pregnant during a lot of this shoot. And I think there are criticisms about her character which do not account for this real life fact and that means there are a lot of solutions that the, the crew have to create in order to hide the fact that she's pregnant and if we keep a keen eye on proceedings especially from now on we're going to understand just how exactly they get around this and why she does have to take a break from the main story at times so we next see her on the quinjet still silent broken from her experience head hung low there's only one uh, very brief close-up of her face in this sequence on the plane um, her face is obscured by her hair in another shot so I kind of do wonder if she was added into this sequence and um, it's a dead giveaway when she's led to Hawkeye's farm because um, Hawkeye's helping her he's got his arm around her and she's he's closest to the camera she's away from the camera her head's down her hair's covering her face she's the only character that needs assistance i mean everybody else got their mind messed with as well they're all fine and we don't actually see her face at all until she's inside the building which is presumably a studio set so she wasn't even there for the location scene at all uh, and once you're aware of that it'll be very obvious when you watch that sequence you only see like the side of her hair and her back um, and once we do see her face when she enters the farmhouse, she suddenly miraculously no longer requires assistance. So it's one of those unfortunate things that because of the pregnancy, um, they've had to make some compromises. And uh, it is quite obvious once you're aware of it. Uh, and this is, look, this is the hero who's gone to the farm to lick their wounds scene straight out of uh, Ninja Turtles 89. Most action movies have the going to the farm scene where uh, the heroes have been beaten up a bit and uh, getting themselves ready for that final act. So inside the farmhouse, we meet another cause of much fan angst, Hawkeye's wife. And a little odd thing here as well, considering that we're about to have it reinforced that Widow and Hawkeye's family are very close. Uh, when his wife, Laura, is introduced, Widow looks just as perplexed and surprised as everyone else in the group shot where they're all reacting. There's no warmth or familiarity there at all in that shot. And uh, look, let's address this, the, the Hawkeye Black Widow thing. I would have thought that Hawkeye was a love interest of Widow 2 from previous films. And I think that idea kind of held up in Winter Soldier because if you had a keen eye, you would see that she was wearing a necklace with a silver arrow on it, the sort of reminder of him, this idea that he was in her thoughts. Uh, but no, it turns out they are just very close friends or best friends, if uh, we recall her own words. And this upset a lot of people. But then again... Really, if, if we get her away from our own fan wishes, isn't it a positive thing? Like, isn't it great to see a man and a woman be best friends in a film without sex being involved at all? Like, I think that's kind of rare and progressive and certainly strays from most Scarlett Johansson films. Like, go back and listen to a previous episode of this podcast. There, there were quite a lot of films where 
no matter what film she was in, she was kissing the male lead, often kissing the two male leads. She couldn't be in a film without being a love interest. But here, they are friends, and that's it, and I think that's kind of cool. And as for Hawkeye being tied to a family, might not have been what you expected, but you've got to remember, this isn't the last film of the series by a long shot, and I, I feel like Hawkeye's family have a role to play in the future. I wouldn't be surprised, in fact, if something horrible happens to them. So I, I feel like if you're on the fence with this development, you need to wait and see how it all plays out. I think this is very much part of his arc. I, I thought... It was maybe there initially to give um, Jeremy Renner an out so that he didn't have to keep playing this character. He could walk off into the sunset with his family, but now that he's going to be in Civil War and that we know that he's on Cap's team and that he's anti-registration and because he's got a lot to lose because his family could be found out, I feel like this is an important step. I think we're only getting part of the story here and this is going to lead somewhere. So um, I think we need an open mind about that one. And uh, Scarlet does then have a great chemistry with the kids, though. And, yeah, this is another bit of Natasha with her guard down, actually. Here, she's not Black Widow. She's not Natasha Romanoff. She's Auntie Nat. And uh, she does also have a connection with Laura, finally. She wants the baby to be a girl called Natasha. And I thought that was interesting. Remember what Ultron said? Children to supplant us and help us end. She wants to live vicariously through her best friend's baby because she's she's not going to have a baby of her own but this is not that child this is going to be a boy and widow playfully calls him a traitor through laura's belly button so a little bit of gender again uh, incompetent boys and further proof as well that this natasha banner thing is relatively fresh uh, laura identifies it straight away she can see the chemistry between them but hawkeye idiot hasn't figured it out yet also in that scene favorite line in the film you know I totally support your avenging. Who, who would not want to hear their partner tell them that? So now we get the controversial scene, the one that caused the most internet angst. Natasha's in a robe, sitting pensively, thinking about her traumatic past still. Uh, note as well, when she stands up, she holds a towel over her pregnant belly. You can still see, like, in this scene, she suddenly got hips like Nigella Lawson, though, so pretty good attempt at hiding it, but not quite. Uh, she's been waiting for the shower and she flirts with Banner when he emerges, joking about joining him. But this is very different from the earlier flirting. So there's growth here, there's development, because there's a sadness to this flirting. Definitely she's using humour to mask the pain. And I do enjoy that complexity where they're, they're saying one thing but really feeling another. I think that's a very human response. And this isn't a love scene at all. In fact, the distance between them is really emphasised in the shot of Natasha, who's quite small in this large, sparse room, which is a direct contradiction to her first offers of intimacy. You know, you're really aware of the distance between them. And he wants to leave, and she wants to go too. And she seems desperate here. She's identifying that she's not a hero. She's not an Avenger. She's talking about the fact that it's never been an easy fit. She was pretending that she was part of the team and that she was a hero and everything was good, but she can't escape her past. She can't escape the things that she's done. And she is still the assassin that they made her, the monster that they made her into. And then the closeness does happen. She does get in close. She does grab his hand, but it's out of desperation. Like she really just does not want him to leave without her. She's frightened that if he goes, she loses her opportunity to go as well. I feel like she's trying to seduce him very quickly here. She wants to hide away with him and escape, and he cannot see a future together. He can't have kids, and neither can she, and she reveals that she's been sterilised. And it's in order to make her the perfect assassin. It means she can't have ties. She can't have something that is uniquely hers to care about, anything that might compromise her effectiveness in the field. And we've seen Kill Bill, we're aware of the huge extremes a mother will do to protect her child, and they don't ever want to give her that opportunity. And for me, this is her best performance here as Black Widow. This is very real, very touching. I think it's beautifully delivered as she soldiers on. She's very honest, despite being on the verge of tears here. She's opening up to him and sharing her darkest secrets. And by doing so, she gives him something that we know she does not give up very easily, and that is her trust. And as I said, we've seen the strong ass kicker that you want to see. We've seen that. Now we're seeing the vulnerability underneath. 
and we see what being that strong ass kicker has cost her. She is a killer and there's no redemption for herself in her eyes. It makes everything easier, she says, even killing. And it's this idea of remorseless, connectionless killing that leads her directly into her line, still think you're the only monster on the team. So Natasha sees herself as a monster, which makes her far more interesting as a hero, in my opinion. She's a monster because she has been twisted and modified into a cold-blooded killer, because she has a lot of blood on her hands, because she can't see any form of redemption for what she's done. She can't find redemption with the Avengers or with a partner or with a future generation with her own child. So she is a complicated monster. And uh, in my opinion, a character who has gone on an incredibly interesting journey because she was nothing more than an accessory in Iron Man 2. She was that glassy eyed ass kicker with huge false eyelashes. But now we see the real person beneath that. I think it's a really bold choice and I'm personally like a big fan of it. And for the life of me, when you think about everything we've talked about both today and in previous episodes, I cannot imagine why a belligerent internet would ignore the fact that this scene is a culmination of all of that past character information and simply dilute it to the ridiculous Joss Whedon thinks that women who can't have children are monsters. Like seriously, is that, that cannot be your analysis of all this. That can honestly be what you think that all of this is about. Because firstly, I don't think Whedon has shown himself to have any established agenda there. In fact, he's one of the most progressive male writers of female characters in a time when a lot of people weren't. And... I don't always love his writing or the characters, but there's been absolutely nothing in the past to suggest to me that he's been using his Avengers characters as a pulpit for his real-world views about women and their bodies. I think that's ridiculous. People abused him about this on Twitter and stuff. I think, God, at the very least, you would have to give him the benefit of the doubt because there's never been any malice or agenda in, in, in that respect. And secondly, I'm pretty confident in the fact that a big part of her seeing herself as a monster is because she murdered a lot of people, some of who were tied up defenseless strangers with bags on their heads. In fact, we saw that with our own eyes about 15 minutes ago. So let's not jettison all of that and think that it's suddenly just about her uterus, because it's not. And you know what, then thirdly, like fuck it, let's play devil's advocate. Let's just say for a minute that she doesn't give a fuck about all those people she murdered. Let's pretend it doesn't weigh heavily on her even though that goes against everything else we've seen in these films so far. So let's throw that uh, and logic out the window and say that she thinks she's a monster purely because she can't have children. She's like, oh, look, I don't give a fuck about all those people that I killed that uh, have been um, weighing on my conscience for four movies now. No, no, I don't give a fuck about that. Let's talk about my uterus. It makes me a monster. Let's say that was the case. Even then, I think it's okay for a character to think that especially if a character is only part way through their journey. Because good characters, like real people, are flawed and they don't get it right all the time. And as humans, we're often undone by what we perceive as our failings or shortcomings or unwanted burdens. A character can have a problem and feel like they are a piece of shit because of it. And that is okay. The question is though, how do they deal with it then? How do they bounce back? How do they learn from it? Find peace with it? How do they figure out that they have worth beyond that? And that's the journey. Because character conflict isn't just fly kicking a villainous robot in the face. These characters are easy to invest in because they have personal human problems fears and desires on top of all that and if you want to dilute that into just this 2d hero character like we had in superhero films of the past then you're a dummy but more than that you're really cheating yourself out of a, a more complex and interesting work black widow in my opinion is a, a fucking great character who is getting better all the time and that term monster talked about it right at the beginning we talked about frankenstein's monster how often does the term monster come up in this film well, Cap refers to himself as one, drawing comparison between himself and the twins, uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. He says, right, what kind of monster would let a German scientist experiment on them to protect their country? So he's the monster in that situation, as are they. Tony Stark adds himself to the list. He says, I know, I know. I know what everyone's going to say, but they're already saying it. We're mad scientists. We're monsters, buddy. You've got to own it. Make a stand. Banner, Bruce Banner later suspects Vision of being one. He says, if we're wrong about you, if you're the monster that Ultron made you to be, 
And Vision concedes, maybe I am a monster. I don't think I'd know if I were one. I'm not what you are and not what you intended. And then Cap later says, Ultron thinks we're monsters and we're what's wrong with the world. This isn't just about beating him. It's about whether he's right, thereby making everyone in the team a monster. So holy shit, you guys, it's almost like monsters are a theme of this film. Deliberately. It's seeded throughout the whole thing. So if you focus just on the widow monster one and ignore all the other context and make it just about a uterus, then you are a double fuck dummy and you need to work on your comprehension skills. Come on! Expected better from you guys, internet. I had so much faith in the internet. I always expect high quality internets. So pull it together. And uh, Banner says, so we just leave. And Scarlet sells it with a silent response. Twitch of the lips. That's a skill. Conveying stuff without words. They might leave. And I'm watching the film the first time and thinking, fuck, is she out of the films now? Is this it? Is this it for Black Widow? We shall see. More exposition in the kitchen. Scarlet stays seated at the kitchen table throughout this scene, which is a great way to hide a pregnant belly. And um, after her intense previous scene, she does get to have a jokey ticket cap about the whole swearing thing, which has been a running joke throughout the film. So we do need to keep things balanced. And logic dictates that Black Widow, after all this angst, all this soul searching, is definitely due an action scene. So they end up chasing Ultron's truck through the city, Cap's hanging off the side, having a bit of a battle with it. And in a very, very awesome moment, Scarlett Johansson drops out of the Quinjet on a motorbike. And there's this great shot beforehand as the hatch opens. Like she takes a deep breath and gives it this kind of, let's hope this works kind of look, which I like. Again, it's not a sure thing. And that adds to the danger. And one of her first tasks on the bike is retrieving Cap's shield. And she says, I'm always picking up after you boys, which is an echo really of her first line in this film, a sort of teasing shot at their competence compared to hers. But this is her back on the job, focused professional and putting the personal stuff behind her. And it's a cool idea for a scene. It, it very much puts her in the forefront of the action, which I love and respect. And she was really robbed because the toys that came out for this movie, the ones aimed at kids, all put Cap on the bike instead, even though it was clearly her. So that's bullshit. That's bullshit toys. I expected better from you too. However, as much as this is seen as a good idea, it's very much a Scarlet is pregnant action scene. Look, watch this thing. We see close-ups of her face giving reactions while riding the bike, something that easily could have been done on a stationary bike in a studio with a belly out of frame. And then we see a lot of long shots of her stunt doubles hooning around on the bikes. So it's a good action scene, but it is one um, that she really doesn't have to be too present for. She's also got one of the most crazy dubbed-in ADR lines ever. And I wonder if this is because um, they're watching all these long shots of Scarlet and thinking, well, she's kind of absent here. We need to have her record a line to, to remind us of her presence. So she like goes zooming past some people in a long shot and she says, beep, beep. Like she's the fucking roadrunner. It's so odd and out of tonally out of place. I just feel like maybe when they were doing a recording session, they recorded a lot of different reactions and ideas and it was just something jokey that happened during it. Like Scarlett made a joke and said beep beep at one point and they just thought it was funny and they put it in. It kind of sticks out. Look out for it. And her stunt double rolls into the truck. Then she shows up for a couple of reaction shots and then the truck is launched up into the air, making her effectively kidnapped by Ultron. Um, although she's remaining so far relatively calm and in control. This made me pause in the first time I watched this too. I'm thinking, really? Like, Black Widow, of all people, is captured by the bad guy and needs rescuing? Like, are you really going to go down that path after all that she's done? And, um, I guess yes and no. Like, she does choose to stay and do a job. She chooses to put herself in jeopardy. She hasn't been kidnapped. She hasn't been overpowered. She's getting the job done. And if that means that she has to go off with the truck, that's what she's doing. So she's not helpless here. Um, but secondly, you know... I think she's pregnant, so let her chill in a cell for a while so the filmmakers stop having to find ways to hide her belly. So she doesn't have to start walking around with a pop plant or a washing basket or something in front of her. Uh, so I, I tend to think this choice comes down to real-world logistics more than anything else, although I don't know. Um, and, you know, it's kind of odd. When she awakes from her slumber as a captive, she's reclining on the floor, she's battered and frightened all of a sudden. 
which is quite funny, like how quickly she shakes that all off. Because I, I feel that by the time Banner shows up to rescue her, she's pretty chill and settled in. She's kind of made a go of it. Like she's managed to get info about her location um, out to the others using her sweet spy skills. And when Banner shoots open her cell, she hefts the big door aside by herself like it's nothing while he's still being a pussy about the recoil. And it's in this quiet moment between the two when no one else is around that they sort of realize, should we just disappear? And you're thinking, Christ, can they do that? Are they just going to completely opt out of this third act battle so that Scarlet can go have a baby and they don't have to pay for a CGI Hulk? I I didn't know you could just do that. Don't panic, they don't. Well, not exactly. But this is a sequence I really love because it ends up subverting all the tropes. They're starting to leave and Banner is not going to go green because suddenly he doesn't have a compelling reason to. She has pursued him the entire film and he's finally on board. She gave him her trust earlier, but it's taken this long for him to share his. She's finally got him he's in they can escape she says she adores him and they kiss and you're like oh how romantic he got the girl all right i wasn't expecting you to go and do this bullshit but then just when you think it's going down that well-trodden path she pushes him down a huge fucking hole she says but i need the other guy and the hulk jumps out and she says let's finish the job That is total Black Widow right here, completely in character. She's underhanded, she's reckless, she's untrustworthy, she got what she wanted and she threw it away in order to get the job done. It is a fantastic character moment. And a not so gentle reminder that while we are going to pause to explore their more intimate personal lives, we still have a big action superhero blockbuster to deliver. They have to go and kick ass one more time. Except then pregnant Scarlet gets to go relax in a trailer for a little bit, put her feet up while CGI Scarlet gets to ride up the mountain on the Hulk's back. Stunt double Scarlet steps up to the plate and gets to roll along the floor. And then pregnant Scarlet emerges briefly just to stand up in the frame, revealing only a head and her shoulders again. And her last words to him before the back of the stunt double runs off into the distance is, now go be a hero. So... They were monsters, but for this moment, they are heroes once again. Seriously, that's all you're going to be able to see now when you watch the film is how often, like, whenever you see Scarlet's face, it's just head and shoulders for a lot of this film. Full body stuff is obscured. Now, um, there's a lot of fighting, but not a lot for Scarlet in this huge end battle. She does have a nice moment with Cap where they think that they're all going to die, that they're going to stay on this doomed um, piece of city that's uh, rising into the air. And she pretty much accepts that they are not going to make it out alive. But it's more stoic than emotional, and it's really cut short by Nick Fury turning up with a helicarrier to help save the day. And um, of course, she does get to join the big fight with everyone um, when they're all fighting the Ultron robots in the center of the city there. Uh, But that's one of those shots that would have been pieced together and could have been shot whenever. And uh, she does get to use her fancy Widow gauntlets, though, to piss off a bunch of robots. And then as things wind down, it is lullaby time for the Hulk. She offers her hand, but uh, she's still nervous, probably even more so now. And he is more suspicious. Even though he's in Hulk mode, he remembers uh, her little betrayal there. The, The trust has been broken. And then bloody Ultron cock blocks them by shooting at them from a jet. So lots of chaos, Quicksilver, eat shit. Hulk deposits a dazed and confused Scarlet on the helicarrier. Again, we only get to see a close-up of a real face before the CGI double replaces her. And Hulk heads onto Ultron's jet to mess him up. One last poignant moment here. She reaches out to him on the screen of the Quinjet, trying to lure him back. She's desperate. She knows he's breached that trust. And he turns the screen off. And sad Hulk disappears into the sky in the jet. And her response is wordless, but we know that she is devastated. She has paid a price. But like any good superhero, she's back to business. So she stands motionless, alone in the new Avengers complex. The new baby has been born. She sees a picture of it on her phone. She musters a smile. Fury tells her there's no sign of the Hulk and she's sad about this. And she does suspect here that Fury did send her to recruit him originally for a reason. He, he knew that they would have a connection. 
So she's reflective. This is a moment of, of potential change. What is next for Natasha Romanoff? And um, she remains staring at this wall for an entire other scene until Cap finally comes back in and, and snaps her back to work. He makes her focused again, and they head out to meet the new Avengers roster, which is Scarlet Witch, Falcon, Vision, and War Machine. And she gets to stand behind Cap, his uh, right-hand man, though I think she's standing on his left, as they go to assemble, ready for the next chapter in her saga, which will be Civil War, Captain America 3. So in conclusion, uh, I am really quite a big fan of this film. I actually really love what they did with her. I think it's a really cool journey, and I was really quite shocked and disappointed that a lot of people didn't feel the same way. But at least now, I've uh, justified my opinion and I've given you some things to think about and um, I guess the discussion will continue. Certainly, everybody is entitled to their wrong opinion. And in fact, if anything, I think the only disappointing thing about her performance, her role in this film, is that it's compromised by the fact that she's clearly not on set as much as she usually is, uh, just because of her pregnancy. And real-life things like having babies and is, uh, yes, far more important than doing your superhero blockbuster sequel. I respect that, and they made it work with what they have, but I do think it possibly would have been a slightly different film and that she would have been even more present had that not been the case. And, of course, in terms of this show... It means that she only had one film this year, so it's going to be a little while before the next episode as she uh, gets caught up again. We usually also take this time to consider her three greatest feats in the film. I think number one, she very successfully and cunningly and kept that pregnant belly hidden. Quite impressed by that. I know she had a team of people to help her do it, including stunt doubles and CGI people, but uh, I certainly sometimes look down at my own belly and think, well, maybe we can learn from this. Uh, maybe we can pick up some of these tricks and use them in our own lives. Two, she made us believe that Hawkeye has friends. No easy feat. And three, she added complex emotional layers to a character that I continue to enjoy and just think grows and grows and uh, is fantastic. And look, if anything, Marvel, stop being babies about it. Give her a solo Black Widow movie, for Christ's sake. Be proud of and utilize that asset that you have in both the character and Scarlett Johansson. Plenty of other filmmakers know that she can carry a film. She's going to be doing Ghost in the Shell soon. You guys need to step up and put it in there. And we've just seen uh, the announcement of Ant-Man and Wasp film, which was previously not on the schedule. So we know there is flexibility there. I don't know, maybe Scarlet's the holdout. Maybe she doesn't want to do it. Maybe uh, she's going, look, shut up, I don't want to. But I think it would be fantastic. Whether people like this film or not, the fans have definitely shown that they're really passionate about this character. They're invested in the character. They're interested in the character's development and future, so her own movies are a really great opportunity to address that and flesh some of these things out. Okay, so that was Age of Ultron. Next time, well, I believe it will be Hail Caesar, which is the new Coen Brothers film that is currently scheduled for release on the 5th of February, so quite a while before I will speak to you again. Uh, the trailer, though, the teaser trailer has been released for Jungle Book, which is 15th of April. That is a voice role. She's voicing Car the Snake. And if you watch the teaser, you'll find that we get some uh, good classic Scarlet narration over the top of that. So you will hear her voice. You will see her in snake form. And then Captain America Civil War is 6th of May. So not really that long before we're going to get even more questions answered about the Black Widow and see how her character develops. So three films that I'm genuinely excited about and then uh, Ghost in the Shell, I guess, the year after that. And we will see what else happens in the meantime. So... Thank you so much for listening. Really cool to be back. As I said, I have missed the show greatly. Um, if you've missed me and you're not listening to my other shows, then you can listen to me every week. Listen to me on FPCast, the official podcast for Fruitless Pursuits. That's a general pop culture podcast. Jacinta and I talk about 
movies that we've seen and pop culture news and all sorts of bullshit, you can also find me at the Book Was Better podcast. Myself and a guest host every week just about read a shitty novelization and do a review of it. And you can find about uh, find about blah, 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 find out all about these things at www.fruitlesspursuits.com. That's where all the new shows are posted. Also, if you're a super fan, you can support us on Patreon, Patreon slash Fruitless Pursuits. And uh, come and like our Facebook page, Fruitless Pursuits. And we've got a discussion group as well, which is called, take a deep breath, The Book Was Better, FP Car, ScarJo, A Go-Go discussion page. There are good people there. There will be a thread for this episode if you want to come in and uh, have it out with me. That is the place to go. So, on hiatus for another few months, at least, probably about half a year in reality. But please keep this in your subscriptions and don't you forget about me. Don't, 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 don't. Catch you soon ish. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe, go, go.